Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We are in part seven of our series in the book of Matthew. And so far, Pastor Lauren and Pastor Stefan have done an incredible job at setting the plate before us. They've given us some incredible messages. So I thought I would quickly rattle off a bit of a recap so that if you've missed, go back and watch them. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a flavor of what we've been talking about as a church. So, so far in our series on Matthew, we've traced through the genealogy of God's or Jesus and God's redemption as seen in that genealogy, and we see how a tender shoot grew up. Jesus was called the tender shoot, and we see in the genealogy how God just traced his plan of redemption through Jesus. And then we read about the miraculous events surrounding Jesus' birth and the hardships of his early years, and not just hardships for himself, but also for the families and, and people around Jesus in that time as they struggled under the leadership of tyrant rulers. And then we looked at the life and the calling of John the Baptist, and Lauren's message on uh, whose agenda do we live by. That, that one really resonated with me. Whose agenda do we live by? He must become greater and I must become less. Then Jesus steps into his public ministry, but first a short detour into the dead center middle of nowhere to pray and fast. And that should challenge us. If that's Jesus' approach to ministry is first, let me stop, pray and fast. That should teach us something. And then Jesus calls his disciples, simple fishermen, ordinary simple fishermen. He says, come and follow me. We have hope. And then finally, these past couple weeks, we've been treated to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, or the Talk on the Rock, as Pastor Lauren calls it. And what a sermon that was from Jesus. You know, I was thinking about it as Lauren was preaching on it, and I said, you know, if by God's grace I get the chance to continue preaching throughout my lifetime, I pray that my final sermon, after much prayer and practice, can even be a shadow of the beauty of Jesus' first sermon and that my life could reflect the truths that Jesus taught. And all of that brings us to today where I'd like to park, which is Matthew chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles with you, or maybe you have your phone on you, I trust you're not texting, but you can pull out, uh, because it's good to follow along in God's Word as we read these truths. So Matthew chapter 8 is where we're going to be spending time today. So, as we trace through Matthew chapter 8 this morning, I'd like us to first notice the first line. I don't want us to miss the first line. I believe that there is an important truth in the first line of Matthew chapter 8 that God would have us dwell on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start reading actually two verses prior in Matthew 7, 28. And I'm going to read through till Matthew 8, 1. So this is how Jesus concludes uh, chapter 7 and then moves into chapter 8 says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Notice authority is a passage, or is a, it's actually a theme throughout Matthew 8. Jesus' authority is demonstrated again and again. So they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So our very first point that I want to make is that Jesus came down the mountainside, but will you? Jesus came down the mountainside, but will you? Jesus, notice what he does. He preaches this sermon. 
he gets up and comes down the mountainside and immediately he launches into ministry. See, one of the most dangerous things that we can do as a follower of Christ is to hear the word being preached or to read the word for ourselves but then fail to act on it. And what I love about Jesus so much is that he came not, us, not only to show us the way, to tell us what the way looked like, but he also came to lead the way. Jesus practiced what he preached. So, let's look at a few other passages that speak of the importance of coming down the mountainside with Jesus. So we actually don't need to look very far. We need to back up a little bit to the very last illustration that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 24 to 27 says this. Jesus gives this illustration. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who has built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. It really shouldn't surprise us that Jesus concludes his Sermon on the Mount with a strong call to obedience. So notice in this illustration that Jesus gives, he says that difficulty will come on both people in this situation. Both people have the rain come down, the streams rise, and the wind blow against their house. And both people also hear the word of God. Those are their similarities. But the difference here between weathering the storm and not Jesus says is to obey his words, to practice, apply, and implement them into our lives. So it can't just stop at Bible reading. And I'm an avid Bible reader, and I trust you are as well. I personally love having a Bible reading plan because that helps me to pace it and helps it to become a discipline in my life. But it can't just stop at reading the Bible. It needs to transpire into action. Another example the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. We talk a lot about this passage, and we will continue to talk a lot about this passage. It's the great commissioning of Jesus. This is how he concludes the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you. But wait, I, I missed a part, right? I think I missed a part anyway. Did Jesus say, teaching them everything I have commanded? Is that our job? Well, that's part of it. But Jesus says, to teach them to... Oh, all right, let's try that one more time. So I want to feel cool like Pastor Ray whenever he gets us to, to say things. I want to be cool like that. So, Jesus said, teaching them to... Obey, obey everything I have taught and commanded you. That is the power of the Great Commission. Jesus says, take my words, seek to apply them into your life, and then take someone else along for the journey. And then finally, James 1, to 25, very clear. James lays it out for us. Do not merely listen to the words and so deceive yourselves. Deception is a real thing. The Bible warns a lot about it. But we would often think deception is just listening to the wrong teaching. But actually, James says here, you can deceive yourself by reading God's word and not applying it into your life. 
And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I'll skip ahead. He says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so, Jesus came down the mountainside and he practiced what he preached. So the question is, will we do the same? So I want to give a little bit of an example of how this could look in our lives, a practical challenge, if you, if you will. And you'll notice if you go to our church website, our homepage, you'll see that there are still sermon notes being put onto the website. And so we're done with, uh, how, with how we were doing it with the drive-in service, but we're still putting our sermon notes online. You can go and check that out. And in the sermon notes, you'll see this uh, practical application is in there. And so you can go and try this this week. But my challenge to you would be this week, as you're spending time with the Lord in his word, read a passage, perhaps you pull one out of the Sermon on the Mount or Matthew chapter 8, and you follow these three simple steps. Ask, listen, and obey. Ask Jesus what he would like to say to you from this passage. Listen for what he says, and don't overcomplicate it. It doesn't need to be, you know, a big scholarly work done. Ask Jesus, how do you want me to obey this? If the Bible is clear that Jesus wants us to obey, I don't think he would make it difficult. So ask Jesus, ask the Holy Spirit, how can I obey you? And then obey in simple faith and try to do it that day. Obey in simple faith. So that is how we come down the mountainside one step at a time with Jesus. And one last uh, note on this. You might be thinking, wow, that's a strong emphasis on obedience to the word. Well, certainly there is a lot of grace, and I'm not saying that, you know, if you don't do something after reading every single Bible verse that you are in trouble. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I do want to note is it will take effort to put the word into practice in our lives. And I came across a great uh, thought by Dallas Willard this week. And Dallas Willard said this, grace and effort are not opposites. Grace and earning are opposites. See, grace and effort, they don't have to be enemies. In fact, grace should compel us to live a life of effort. But the opposite of grace is earning, thinking that those efforts earn us our standing with God. They don't. We're saved by grace, such a great grace. But because of that, Jesus touches our hearts and we want to obey. But we got to move on, and so the next point that I want to pull out of Matthew chapter 8, I want to look at crowds, individuals, and disciples. Okay, crowds, individuals, and disciples. So, our attention to Matthew chapter 8, one thing that we will notice is in this passage, there is a back and forth between crowds who flocked to Jesus, individuals who encountered Jesus, and then finally, disciples who followed Jesus. So let's look a little bit at how Jesus interacted with each of these groups. So we'll start with the crowds. Don't you feel good? You're in a crowd. Safe one, but you're in a crowd. Isn't that nice? So let's talk about crowds. Matthew tells us that at Jesus' teaching, the crowd was amazed. He had effectively captivated them. He had them eating off, hanging off of his every word. And as a teacher you'd surely see this as a great success, right? That's what we would call success too, right? Growth, excitement, there's a buzz in the air. And to be clear, crowds and energy and excitement, that can mean success. But we should be careful not to automatically assume so. In fact, Jesus worked hard 
in his ministry to deter crowds from gathering. And he even sought to evade them many times in his ministry. Jesus would often withdraw to solitary places or at the last minute say, I'm going to go this way. I'm getting in the boat. I'm out of here. Jesus was, was like that, and he was a bit of a mystery, and I love just thinking about what would Jesus be like to follow practically now? It'd be When you'd think he's going this way, all of a sudden he'd be going that way, and it's something about him that's just exciting. I don't know. I'm spontaneous, though, so maybe that's the part that excites me about Jesus. But All right, so we're going to get back to that in a moment, but what does Matthew tell us about Jesus' heart towards the crowd? Did Jesus dislike crowds or something? Was he, you know, was he just always upset and grumbling? Ah, all of these people around me, the noise. Ah, I, I don't think so. But I've noticed that sometimes people will turn up their noses towards a church or a ministry or a movement simply because it is large, large or because there's energy there based off of this assumption that Jesus clearly didn't like the crowd. However, we see in the book of Matthew, Jesus says this in Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus again repeats this sentiment in Matthew 14, right after the news of John the Baptist, his cousin and ministry ally, hearing that John died, says he withdrew, but then seeing the crowds, he had compassion on them. And then again, Jesus speaking to, to a crowd in Matthew eleven twenty eight. We'll all recognize this verse. Just consider, Jesus said this to a crowd of people. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That, to me, doesn't paint a picture of a person who's grumbling to be in a crowd. I see Jesus as standing before a crowd and longing for them, having compassion on them, so consider this. Next time that you find yourself in a crowded place, which I wrote in my notes, insert laugh, because that is not as common as it used to be, but maybe next time you're out grocery shopping, or say you're at the lake, or you're just out for a walk in the community, I want you to maybe remember this and consider. Every person that you pass by was made in the image of God. Each one he knows by name. He knows their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents. He knows every detail of their life. He sees the wounds that they carry, the ones that they hide behind the smile. Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion. Do we? Jesus looked at the crowd and he longed for God's will in the crowd's life. Do we have that same longing? Allow that to shape your time when you're out in the public. Ask God to give you a heart of compassion for the crowd. But next we're going to move on to the individuals. So he covered the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion. But then it's interesting that Jesus chooses to move on from the crowd in order to seek out the individual, which should tell us something about Jesus' motives. He wasn't looking for stardom. He wasn't set after a stage with big lights, but rather he was compelled by his love for people. I believe that when we stand with Jesus in eternity, one thing that will become apparently obvious is his burning love for people. People of all different 
races and walks of life, different ages. Jesus' love for individuals. See, Jesus saw individuals in the crowd, and he loved them. And maybe you're here today, and you're wondering, you know, in a big group like this, inside of a church building, does God really see me? Does, do I, am I known by God? Does he know what I'm facing? You see him maybe working in another person's life, or you see him doing something really exciting over in that part of the world, and you go, but does God know me? And I want to say yes. Jesus looks at the crowds, and he sees the individual, and he sees you. In Matthew 8 alone, Jesus interacts with several individuals, including, here's a list, a leper, a Roman centurion who was Gentile, Peter's mother-in-law, and two men afflicted with demons. All of these encounters, and more, were countercultural and radical interactions. See, Jesus didn't talk to people, uh, you know, how should I say this? When Jesus chose to talk to an individual, it turned some people's heads because they went, why would you talk with them? No, no, Jesus, it makes sense that you would give your time to a worthy person, but why to them? All of these interactions that Jesus had were countercultural and radical. So we're just going to look at one example, okay? Matthew 8, 2 to 4. So this is right after Jesus comes down the mountainside. He's going to enter into ministry, and he comes across a man with leprosy. The word reads, A man with leprosy came and knelt down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched this man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer a gift, the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I wonder, could it be, and I'm, I'm purely spe- uh, speculating here, but could it have been that somehow this leper overheard Jesus' sermon and he heard Jesus say, Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And could it be, perhaps, that this leper went, if ever there was a time to be bold, it's now. I, I speculate, but either way, it, this is a surprising passage, a very surprising passage, although it may not be to us if we don't understand the significance of what's happening. You see, lepers were outcasts of the day in every sense of the word. As one commentator put it, the leper was an outcast from normal society, The sufferer was not only potentially a health hazard and likely to be physically objectionable, but he was also ceremonially unclean. You see, it was a double offense. Not only was there the health hazards which resulted in physical spacing between the sick and the healthy, but there was also the matter of their ceremonial standing before God and members of the religious community. A leper was considered unclean according to the law, and therefore they were were to be avoided at all cost. In fact, interesting note, lepers were required by law to wear torn clothing, to cover their face, and to call out, unclean, unclean, whenever they entered into a crowd of people. Could you imagine spending your entire life carrying that weight? I mean, I think about, think about it. 
the things that we carry inside that make us feel ashamed and separated from God and other people. But this leper had to call out every time that he was around a crowd, unclean, unclean, making this boastful public declaration of his unworthiness. Could you imagine what a life like that would feel like? So what do you think it meant to this man when Jesus not only tolerated his presence, Jesus was actually a man who didn't, finally a person who didn't boot him out of his presence, but in fact, he bent down and touched him. What would that have meant? See, it's important to note that this passage does not say that Jesus healed the leper, but rather it says that Jesus cleansed the leper, which is significant. And it's significant to all of us because all of us ought to approach Jesus just like this man did. You see, his uncleanness bore physical signs on his body. But the Bible says that before a holy God, everyone is unclean. We are all unworthy of being in the presence of Jesus. And you know, sometimes I think that the fact that our uncleanness doesn't bear physical manifestation can actually trick us into this illusion that we're better than we think we are. I'm not trying to tear people down or go on an angry rant, but the truth is, in light of the cross, the Bible does say the cross was necessary because we are unclean. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us bear the marks of unclean, unworthy, because of our sin. And so, question, do we approach Jesus with the same boldness, humility, and urgency that this man did? Look at how urgent he was to get before Jesus and to say, Lord, he knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This man was saying, I know you can do it. I know you can do it, Jesus. Do we approach Jesus with that kind of boldness and ask him to clean us, to ask him to sanctify us, to make us holy, to help us in our areas of weakness with that kind of urgency? And the second question is this. Do we write people off as unworthy of our time and our love? You see, Jesus interacted with a crowd that loved him, but he paused to give attention to an individual that desperately needed him. And my fear is that sometimes we are so busy in the crowd of our life or in the busyness of our life that we pass by the needs of an individual. And that might be the most beautiful sacrifice we could ever make for Jesus is to say, this individual matters to God and so this individual matters to me. Does our life have space and does our life have room to love the individual? I think Jesus not only commanded us, but he also modeled the way, amen? Jesus loved the, the leper and he cleansed him. All right, we're gonna move to our last category now and head towards the conclusion of today's message. The last category is the disciples. This category we find throughout the Gospels as those who are known as his disciples. Jesus saw individuals and he called them to be disciples. But first, 
Let's give pause and ask, what is a disciple anyway? Well, plainly, a disciple is one who sits under another's teaching. Practically, a disciple is one who follows their teacher. Where he goes, they go. What he does, they attempt to do. This wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day. See, rabbis and teachers had disciples. We also know that John the Baptist had disciples, and he sent those disciples to ask Jesus questions. So it wasn't like the world had never seen a teacher who had disciples. Jesus had disciples too, and he called those disciples to follow him. And so far in Matthew, we've seen Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John as well as uh, Matthew is about to be called. Interestingly enough, Matthew's call, who is writing this gospel to us, is in Matthew chapter 9. So Jesus had disciples too that he called to follow him. He had 12 core ones and many more that followed him closely. For instance, Luke 10 tells us that Jesus had 70 disciples that he commissioned to go out and do ministry. And so he had the 12 core, but he also had others that were following and regularly listening to his teaching. And when Jesus spoke to people, and especially when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said some really tough things. So we're going to take, for example, a passage often titled, The Cost of Following Jesus in Our Bibles. You see, Jesus said some really tough things, and we like the passage that we read before where Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and we go, oh, yes, Lord, like, I will come to you. I am weary and heavy burdened, and I do love that passage. But we must also love the passages from Jesus that are hard to follow sometimes, that are hard to hear and hard to wrestle with, like this one. So the cost of following Jesus Matthew 8, 18 to 23. This is the last passage that we're going to focus on in Matthew 8. I'll read the, the thing to you in its entirety. It says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law, an individual, came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied to him, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And another disciple, notice we've seen crowds now, we've seen an individual, and now we're going to see a disciple, all in one short passage. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. You know, at the, as the message is coming to the end, I'd like to make one final point. If I could summarize this passage here with what Jesus is saying, I believe Jesus is teaching us that if we want to be his disciples, we enter by his terms, not our own. We enter by his terms. See, two men approach Jesus here in Matthew, and in Luke's telling, interestingly, there was three men, but for sake of time, we're just looking at Matthew's today. And I'd like to just make a few observations of these two men that approach Jesus. So, man number one, the teacher of the law. He, in our context, we might call this man the, pros, uh, the prospect or the valuable asset. You know, if I'm going to be playing basketball and uh, we're choosing teams, and all of a sudden someone walks in who's six foot nine, 250 pounds, 
and just jacked. He'd be the prospect, the valuable asset. I want him on my team, please. I'll just give him the ball and he'll do the work. That's sort of like this man. You see, the teacher of the law, he came and he said, teacher, uh, I will follow you wherever you go. He was beaming with potential, with great skills. He approaches Jesus and in effect, he says this to him, teacher. So notice it's one to another, like, hey, I teach, you teach, you know, we're, we're on this, yeah, we're, we're, we're so alike, you and I, Jesus. So, teacher, let me join the team. The two of us, we could go places. With teamwork, we could make the d- dream work, Jesus. I'll follow you anywhere. So you can almost see, you can hear this man's ambition coming out of him. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. But Jesus responds to him in effect and says, you have no idea what you are requesting. Have you really counted the cost. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The message translation says, we're not going to be staying at nice hotels. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Have you actually counted the cost, young man? This isn't going to be, you know, a walk in the park. Jesus isn't impressed. And here's the truth. He's not impressed with you either or me. Jesus isn't looking for a resume. He doesn't need your skills. He doesn't need your influence. He doesn't need your popularity, your money, your intellect. He doesn't need your passion. He doesn't need your understanding of the Bible. He doesn't need your understanding of people in culture or business tactics. Jesus isn't, following Jesus isn't like getting hired at Pixar. You don't force yourself on Jesus with a good resume. But here's the truth. After you're like, whoa, okay. Here's the truth. Jesus doesn't need us, but Jesus wants us. That is truly the mystery. Does God have any need at all? Of course not. He doesn't need anything from us. If he did, he would cease to be God. But in the great wisdom and mystery of God, yet he desires us. He wants us. He wants to use your giftings. He created you with a skill set. He created you with a way of thinking, and he wants to use that, but we must be very careful to ever think that God needs us. He doesn't. Well, then there's the second man, the disciple with duty, and yes, I just said duty, and you'll have to get over it, okay? But it was the best thing I could say, the disciple with duty. And some people who aren't getting it are like, what? It's so funny about that. Ask your neighbor. Um, Okay, so this passage seems to indicate that while man number one offered his services to Jesus, man number two was asked to follow by Jesus, and what we are reading is his response to that request. If you go back and, and read it, it's another disciple said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father, as in Jesus had said, hey, you should follow me. And he said, well, first I have to go and do something. You see, so he actually responds with a totally legit responsibility that he must first attend to, which is burying his father. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details, but context is important and helpful. So first, What this man is saying is an honorable thing that he wanted to do. He wanted to honor his parents as well as he wanted to grieve the loss of his father. 
And furthermore, it was even dutiful by law for him to do what he was asking to do as a son. See, he, he, was, he was saying, Lord, I have an obligation here. Jesus responds to him, however, and says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you follow me. That seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Seems like, whoa, time out. You might be tempted at this point to question Jesus a little bit on his tactics of leadership or even on his character. You look at that and go, Jesus, that is so cold. He didn't stop to give this guy a hug. You didn't respond with sympathy. You said, let the dead bury their own dead. And so we need to answer two questions before we question, uh, for ourselves before we question Jesus. And that is, first, does Jesus mean to say that we all must be homeless and live nomadic lives in order to be his disciple? Is that what Jesus is trying to teach us from this passage? Does Jesus have a thing against beds and mattresses? I hope not. Okay? Second thing, does Jesus mean to say that we must never attend funerals or seek to fulfill family obligations? And the answer is no to both. That is not necessarily what Jesus is saying to you and I. So let's look at this a little bit. Let's break these two questions down. First, is Jesus meaning to say that we all must be homeless and live nomadic lives? Well, Jesus is not saying that. In fact, he was just in the home of one of his disciples in Matthew chapter 8. He was in Peter's home. Matthew 8, 14, when Jesus came to Peter's home, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, and he healed her. Jesus didn't go, Peter, did you not get the memo? I said that we weren't having homes. That's not what my disciples do. No, he enters into Peter's home, and he brings blessing into Peter's home. And throughout the Old and New Testament, we see faithful followers of God living in homes and even in mansions and palaces. So homes are not the problem. Jesus is not saying that homes are the problem. And aren't you glad when January rolls around that that is not what Jesus is saying? I certainly am. The truth is what Jesus is saying is that the call to be his disciple will not be an easy one, and it will require sacrifice. That counts for us too. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we should anticipate there is a sacrifice there. He said to his disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. The cross was not a cute piece of furniture. The cross was a sacrifice. Jesus said, my disciples will carry their cross. Well then second, was Jesus opposed to funerals or to grieving the loss of loved ones? In fact, the answer is no. And in fact, Jesus modeled this to us when he withdrew privately at the news of John the Baptist's death in Matthew 14. As well as, most notably, when Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Seeing the grief of Lazarus' passing on the family, Jesus wept. You know what that communicates? Is that Jesus had emotions that he feels with us. When we suffer loss, when we suffer hardship, Jesus knows what that feels like and he sits with us. He weeps. You see, Jesus' answers here are not descriptive, they're prescriptive. That is to say that Jesus was responding to two real people with two real situations, and in this case, one of them was a man dealing with his father's funeral. 
The point is, Jesus is not saying that these two things in particular, not having a, a, a place to lay his head and let the dead bury their own dead, those two things in particular aren't the cost of following him, but rather what he is saying is that there is a cost to following him, and furthermore, there is nothing off limits for Jesus. When Jesus calls us, there's no area of our lives that are off limits to him. That is what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus is calling us to give him our full yes and to follow him as Lord. And so, we're going to conclude now with that last line of our passage. It says, Matthew 8, 23, Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Jesus calls, will we answer him? That's the question. See, I said that Matthew 8 had a lot to do with authority. Jesus demonstrated to his followers authority over sickness, authority over demonic spirits, authority to speak truth, and he demonstrated authority to call disciples. And so the power of the calling is in the one who calls us. Jesus has the authority to ask us to follow him. And because of that authority, there is no cost too great, and there is nothing off limits. And the best part is that Jesus modeled this himself. You know, one of the passages that I've been uh, meditating on this summer, uh, I'm trying to grow in memory work. I, I'm t I don't want to say I'm terrible at memory. I've been terrible at making time to memorize Scripture. And so I've decided I'd like to grow in it one step at a time. And so one passage I've been reflecting on this summer is Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. And it says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, Jesus didn't just come to tell us the way. He came to lead the way and call us to follow him. Jesus came to lead the way, and he says to you and I, follow me, and will we answer? He looked at the crowds, and he had compassion. He looked at the crowd, and he noticed the individual, and he saw the individual, and he called them to be a disciple. So Jesus is saying, follow me, not because of our worthiness, giftings or ability, but because he calls us. Because he doesn't need us, he wants us. And he calls us even despite our unworthiness, and he makes us clean. And by faith, we can walk out this calling. As imperfectly as it may be, we can walk that out with our Lord. And then finally, it's not discipleship on our own terms, we don't get to come to Jesus like negotiating for a good phone contract, pull out the contract and go, all right, Jesus, let's work out the fine print here. All right, so I really want evenings and weekends, and I really want to be able, you know, to keep at least, you know, this chunk of my summer for just whatever I want. That's not how it works. It also doesn't work that Jesus never allows us to enjoy things. That's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus is the author of life, he loves fun. He is generous. And the more you follow him, the more you know he will lead you to green 
pastures. He will lead you beside still waters. He will restore your soul. I think he's really fun. But we don't get to come to Jesus and iron out a contract with him. We come to Jesus on his terms. And so, if you join me now, we're going to pause for a moment. We're going we're to pause for prayer, and I'm going to ask Jesus if he has a word to speak to us, maybe to you individually. Maybe you're in the category, as I mentioned earlier, of an individual in the crowd, and you're going, does God really know what I'm going through? And maybe Jesus wants to assure you this morning that he knows it, he sees it, and he's with you. Or perhaps there's an area that you've been wrestling with God, and he's saying, follow me, and you're You're in the mix of trying to unclench those hands and say, Lord, Lord, I want to, but I'm just not sure I have the strength. And he's saying, come to me. Come to me. I am gentle. And I want to give you rest. So let's just bow for a moment. Jesus, I ask you now that you would, by your spirit, minister to your church. Father, we know that the calling is great. To follow you means to give up our lives to. We, we lay it down before you, but we do so because you led the way. You modeled that submission to the Father, the reverent submission. And you obeyed your calling so we can obey you, Jesus, by faith. I ask you now that you would speak to us. Where is an area of our lives that you would like to speak to us about, Father? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. Jesus, thank you that you see the crowds and you have compassion, and I pray that you teach us to be like-minded. And you see the crowd and you notice the individual. And Father, I pray that you would remind us as we go throughout our week, throughout the busyness, to not rush past the needs of an individual, but to willingly share that which has been given to us, the love of Christ, with those that we pass by. Jesus, I also pray that you would empower us to walk out the call of being your disciple to follow you. Oh, Jesus, we love you. God, we just, we thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, those joining at home, thanks so much. Don't forget there's baptism uh, live streamed at 1230 if you would like to join for that. And... That's it. Have a fantastic weekend. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.